0: Well, good to be back with you, to be able to preach to you once again after some weeks uh, away. It wasn't off. If you don't know, the elders uh, give me a month every summer as a writing sabbatical, and so that's what occupied my July. Uh, and then last week, we, uh, we drove Autumn and Caitlin, our two oldest girls, to college in Kentucky. And I'll just say that and not anything more, or else I'll cry. Okay. So Asher and Ron have been ably leading us through 2 Peter in recent weeks. We finished that up last week, and today we begin a new series in Psalm 119, the longest psalm of the Bible. We're going to call this series Living by the Word. I think that's what we see in Psalm 119. This week, I just want to introduce the psalm to you, or reintroduce the psalm to you if you're familiar with it, and invite you to soak in it with me over the next several weeks. The plan, as of now, is that we'll take two stanzas per week. So that'll be 16 verses each week. And that will give us 11 more weeks in Psalm 119. Uh, And I'll explain why, the rationale for that, a little bit later in this talk. So turn with me to Psalm 119, somewhere just about the middle of your Bible. There you'll find the book of Psalms. And I'll read for us Psalm 119, just a sampling. So this will be verses 9 to 16, just as an example of what we find in the whole of this great psalm. Psalm 119, starting in verse 9, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Well, today I want to ask and try to answer five questions about this great psalm, and by extension, really the whole Bible. The first question is, what is Psalm 119, and how does it work? What is it, and how does it work? As I said, it's the longest psalm by far at 176 verses. And as you can probably tell from the sample that we read, it's primarily about the Bible. This is one of three psalms that are, that are giving primary attention to the Bible. In fact, you should know these, you should know where they are, it's easy to memorize their location. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and then if you add those numbers together, kind of, not add, but smush them together... You get Psalm 119. Those are the three Bible psalms of the Bible. What's so special about Psalm 119 is that it's not just instruction but prayer. It's a prayer. It's a prayer to God about the Bible and with the Bible. The author is thanking God for the Bible. He is asking God for help according to the Bible. He's resolving before God to go to the Bible, to be led by the Bible, to live and walk in the Bible. The author is unknown. Some think that it's King David, and some of this does sound like King David. But another possibility is that it's written by someone else unknown at a later time, probably around the Babylonian captivity. When God's people were removed from the land and found themselves in a foreign land. That's a good possibility because this writer refers to ungodly princes and kings who are opposing him and taunting him. That sounds like a foreign land. At any rate, it's clearly written at a time of personal, if not national, suffering and persecution and struggle. It's deeply personal. Reading Psalm 119 at times feels like you've stolen someone's prayer journal and you're reading it. It feels at times like maybe you're sitting in on someone's private devotions or what some people call quiet time or or what some people call the prayer closet. It's deeply personal and yet it's not haphazard. It's not whimsical. It's an acrostic psalm, you may know, which follows the Hebrew alphabet, which means it's very well planned. It's not so obvious in our English Bibles, except that every eight verses, you see there's a new heading, and it's designated by a probably unfamiliar word to you, which is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet written out according to its Phonetic, You know, it's written out phonetically uh, in English. This is how that letter of the Hebrew alphabet sounds. So, the first section is Aleph. The second section is Bet, and Gimel, and then Dalet. You get the idea. That's the Hebrew alphabet. And what you can't see in English is that in a Hebrew Bible, every line of each section follows that letter of the alphabet. In verses 1 through 8, each line begins with olive. In verses 9 through 16, all lines begin with bet. That's what I mean by it being an acrostic psalm. And that not only has artistic value, but it probably was useful for memorization back when uh, people were using this in the Hebrew. Of course, as you might imagine, it's hard to reproduce that in another Uh, language with another translation and so most of our English Bibles don't try to replicate it where every line begins with A where every line begins with B instead they just let us know that the first eight verses uh, are designated with this heading Aleph now many have wondered whether there's any deeper significance to following the Hebrew alphabet all the way through its 22 letters and probably the best guess is that It implies, it's not explicit, but it it might imply that this psalm is the aleph to tav of God's word. It is the A to Z of God's word. Or or maybe also implied would be something about the sufficiency of God's word. That the Bible maybe is the the A to Z of, of life before God. Now beyond that, Many scholars, and casual readers for that matter, have remarked about the lack of tidiness in this psalm, apart from the fact that it follows the Hebrew acrostic. Many have noticed that there's a number of themes, or maybe we would call sub-themes, if the primary theme is the Bible. There are themes, yes, on suffering and praise and prayer requests and obedience and enemies and You know, God's word is described here and there. And all of these are sort of interwoven throughout the psalm, despite its apparent tidiness with the Hebrew alphabet. And so many scholars have, well, even been a little bit snarky about the perceived lack of order in Psalm 119. One commentary says, it moves unsystematically and randomly between statements of trust Confession and plea. Another says it has no more organization than a kaleidoscope. Some have classified it as proverbs of prayer. You know, proverbs, kind of new verse, new topic, new verse, new topic, at times anyway. Others have said it's merely a collection of sayings available to the pious when they pray. But it has to be more than that, doesn't it? It has to be more than that. And I've become convinced in this just last week, really, um, of much more structure than I was aware of before and much more structure than, than many scholars would concede. Just recently, I came across an excellent article on Psalm 119. Bear with me. I'm going to get a little more technical for just a few more minutes and then we'll put this to bed but this excellent article by a man named Marcus Nodder, a pastor in England, argues that in the Hebrew there are verbal links and thematic links which pair up every two stanzas, stanza being one of these eight verse sections. So, Aleph and Beit go together, Gimel and Dalet go together, according to this pastor. Also, he says that certain words are repeated or subtly highlighted in the Hebrew in various ways in order that a unique theme to that pair of stanzas eventually emerges and becomes clear. So that it's not this random kaleidoscope of various themes and every time we come to a new section, the kaleidoscope spins again and we're dizzy. But that each couple of sections here Each pair of stanzas has its own emphasis or primary theme. Hence, 11 more weeks over these 22 stanzas. There you go. We won't talk about that structure in any more detail. We won't get bogged down with it in weeks to come. But I wanted to explain it to you now to sort of uh, let you know um, why we're... Spending the amount of time we are in this book. In this, le- uh, sorry, in this psalm. And that leads to our second question to ask. Why do we need Psalm 119? Why do we need Psalm 119? Well, because it's a hearty celebration of the Bible. And boy, we need the Bible. And we need to be reminded of that. Christians need the Bible. That can never be taken for granted. And we probably need to talk about that more than we do as a church. If you think about it, we come together every week and we open the Bible just like we're doing today. Many of you are in smaller studies as well. Some of you with other ladies, some of you with other men, maybe in your community group. Or you were maybe at our Saturday seminar like we had yesterday. Hopefully, we're also reading the Bible on our own and with our families. But how often do we talk about the Bible? Not just a passage in the Bible or something from the Bible, but we talk about what the Bible is and what it does and why we need it and how much we need it and what we should do with it. Not much. Christians need the Bible. And Psalm 119, I think, will... Helpfully remind us of that will even show us of that need in Deuteronomy 32 Moses spoke God's words to the people and he warned them to keep those words and to walk in those words and to teach those words to their children and then he said this is no empty word for you This is your very life. This is no, another way to translate it is, this is no trifle for you. This is your very life, God's words. How often do we see in the Bible, the Bible itself likened to food? It's like manna, we're told. It's like a a mother's milk to an infant. 1 Peter 2 says. It's meat in the book of Hebrews. In Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah said to the Lord, When your words came, I ate them, and they became the joy and rejoicing of my heart. He ate them. If the Bible is like food, and Bible intake is like eating, and we need it regularly, consistently, If the Bible is spiritual food, then many of us are spiritually malnourished. Sometimes we wonder why we're not hungry for the Bible. We shouldn't be surprised if we haven't been eating. If you've fasted for longer than a few days, you know eventually you're not hungry. Eventually, you're a little disinterested in food. You can get used to no food for a while, both physically and spiritually. You go too long, either physically or spiritually, and it's going to mean trouble. So why do we need Psalm 119, and why do we need several weeks on it? Well, because we need motivation about the Bible. We need a pep talk About making it a priority we need a locker room speech to rile us up about the Bible this man who wrote Psalm 119 was fired up about the Bible and so he moves us toward the Bible not by way of guilt but by way of example he excites us he wasn't perfect He wrestled with God about some things he was dealing with, but he did it with an open Bible and on his knees. The example we have in Psalm 119 is one in which life is centered on the Bible. The Bible is all of life. He's living on the Bible. He's living by the Word. Everything's in relation to the Bible. This man's suffering and his doubts and his prayer requests and his praise His wants and his desires, it was all wrapped up and focused on the word of God. You see this in his prayer requests. When he almost always prays for this or that according to your word. Do this or that according to your word. Help me according to your word. Sustain me according to your word. This almost has excessive language Effusive language, extravagant language about his affection for and his celebration of the Bible. Look at verse 129. We'll see a few verses here. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments." He speaks several times of delighting in God's word, of loving God's word, of longing for God's word. Some Psalm 119, some have said, is "a love poem for God's word." And that's about right. More can be said. More should be said, more will be said over the next 11 weeks. But that's a good place to start. It's something like a love poem for God's word. Think about love poems. Maybe you wrote some many years ago. I have some I've written to my wife over the years. Love poems are deeply personal. They're extravagant with their language. They're unblushingly Emotional, maybe even over the top, we might say. So Psalm 119 may ignite in you a new or renewed love for God's word and the God of the word. Psalm 119 stands as the tallest skyscraper in a city of Psalms, not just because it's the longest, but because of its depth and because of its emotional height. Psalm 119 has been a go-to for godly saints ever since it was written. It's rightly been a kind of museum of the Bible that deserves a really slow walkthrough. John Calvin preached 22 sermons on Psalm 119. Charles Spurgeon wrote about 650 pages on it, That's apart from his sermons. The Puritan Thomas Manton in the 17th century preached 176 sermons on it, now published in 1,800 pages on one psalm. And more recently, though he's with the Lord now, the one-time pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, James Montgomery Boyce, he preached 14 sermons on it. So I hope that over these next several weeks, you'll be using Psalm 119 on your own, whether it's your, it's your central reading place for a while, or whether it's supplementary to wherever you're reading Perhaps before you read, wherever you are in the Bible right now, in your Bible reading, perhaps you will let Psalm 119 every day set the table for you. Maybe you'll let this psalmist set the tone, set the mood, set the agenda for reading elsewhere. I hope even now you're having just a bit of bubbling excitement about what's to come as we study this together. And by the way, if you're not excited about the Bible, if you're not excited about about celebrating the Bible, maybe right now you're going through hardships or some difficulties in your life, maybe you feel detached from God, perhaps you feel a mile away from cloud nine, wherever that is and whatever it is. Well, be assured that Psalm 119 isn't all on cloud nine. This man was in the muck, too. He's going through some stuff. Yes, he loves his Bible and the God of the Bible, but he's hurting, and he writes this through tears. He reads his Bible through tears. So don't think Psalm 119 is only for the godly or the giddy. It's for all of us. It's for any Christian, wherever you are. And it should move us from wherever we are, closer to God. That's why we need Psalm 119. We also need Psalm 119 because our culture, this day, this age, it is especially busy, distracted, entertained, too glued to devices, too, too easily satisfied with Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. So we need to see the example of a guy who lingers long over his Bible in prayer with God. We need to take a long look at someone like him. We need to recognize that we live in a culture that is far from conducive to the habits and attitudes toward the bible that this man shows us I remember some years ago talking with a, another christian brother I asked him how his bible reading was going we were talking about some things going on in his life that weren't quite, quite right I said how's your bible reading going he said Fine, I get like 30 to 40 verses in a day. I thought, well, that's a weird way to describe your Bible reading, 30 to 40 verses. Some people say, you know, a psalm a day or a proverb a day or someone says a chapter a day or I'm reading through the Bible in a year. Who says 30 verses a day or 40 verses a day? Well, come to find out, he was getting all his Bible simply by looking on Facebook and when friends would post various verses, he would read them. Now, there's nothing wrong with posting verses to Facebook. There's nothing wrong with reading the Bible on your Facebook. But the Bible wasn't made like that. It's not just a quote machine. No, we we need to get in the Bible. And our culture isn't conducive to that. But I think this man can help us. I could say more on some of that. We'll come back to it in weeks ahead. A third question. What does Psalm 119 teach about the Bible? What does it teach us about the Bible? If Psalm 119 is a prayer which celebrates the Bible, in that for 176 verses, then it must be a pretty good source to tell us about the Bible. And for that, we could go to a different psalm. Psalm 19 would tell us about the Bible. We could go to first, uh, 2 Peter one twenty one or 2 Timothy 3.16. These are nuggets which give us a theology of Bible. But we can also lean on Psalm 119. According to this psalm, the Bible is trustworthy. Just listen to these verses. Verse 42, I trust in your word. Verse 86, all your commandments are sure. Verse 138, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Verse 142, your law is true. Or 160, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. There is nothing like God's word, the Bible. We Christians don't believe that it's just one of the religious holy books out there, like the Quran. We don't believe it's merely a remarkable collection of historical documents, some of which are true and some of which are false. We don't believe it's a book of fables. We don't see it as a a bunch of platitudes or motivational sayings or, or even merely religious rules. It is God's speech to us. It's him talking and talking afresh. Therefore, because it comes from that God, it's trustworthy through and through. And there's nothing like that out there. We know that already. We know that there is nothing out there that is undeniable, that is undebatable, that is unchanging. No, no thing, no one, no book, no news outlet. No, guru is utterly unchanging and trustworthy. Not the president, not the Senate, not Fox News, not CNN, not Deepak Chopra. And not whatever documentary you're going to watch next about the old conspiracy theory you're obsessed with. The Bible is unflinchingly, unchangingly trustworthy. It's reliable, it's right, it's faithful. Yes, we have to interpret the Bible, and we may not always agree on the right interpretation of a certain passage, but the Bible itself is utterly reliable and trustworthy we don't have to wonder and we don't have to come to it with a a kind of suspicion that it might eventually dupe us or let us down or, or or it might change its position or it might be proven wrong by science or become out of date according to cultural consensus the bible is trustworthy the bible is also diverse According to this psalm, it's diverse. We see that in the variety of words used for the Bible in this psalm. There are about eight or nine different words, all synonyms, given here in Psalm 119 for the Bible. It's law, commandments, precepts, testimonies, statutes, judgments, ordinances, and his ways. Not to mention word. It's his word. These aren't different parts of God's word. They're all synonyms for God's word. But they each have their own little nuance, too, that makes them unique. Like God's word is, yes, a law. It's commandment, yes. It shows the right way. It it instructs in God's ways which are good and right and can be followed and, and should be loved and longed for more and more. God is good to teach us, to reveal his will to us, to direct us. God's commandments for Christians, they're not in place to keep us from fun or to test us. It's God's good and perfect way that he designed for us. But the Bible isn't just rules, it also has testimonies. What's that? Well, it's the record of God's ways, the the things he has done in history. It's what he has said. That is his testimony. Much of the Bible is history, as you know. It's a history of God and of his people. It's a story of sin and salvation. That's the overall story of the Bible. And though Psalm 119 talks about the Bible so much... It actually never really makes this point clear. It hints at it with phrases like your promise, or your promises, or salvation, or your steadfast love. That is God's covenantal love. What is that getting at? It's getting at that there is a problem in this world ever since Adam and Eve sinned we've all followed suit this world is bent and broken going astray from god but god rescues he seeks he saves he loves he sets his love on a people covenantally and these themes of promise and love and covenant in the old testament they blossom they come to global proportions When we get to the New Testament, Jesus came to be our righteousness, to be our payment. He he was the means by which God saved a people and made a people for himself. He died on the cross for sins, was raised on the third day, and now offers forgiveness and mercy to any who will simply recognize that they're sinners and ask him for his mercy. And then the Bible Becomes this wonderful thing. If you're not a Christian, the Bible's still useful to you. I would say that's one of the best things you could do. You should get a Bible, read a Bible, and you should come here and listen to Bible teaching. Ask questions about the Bible. In fact, specific books like the book of John were written specifically for someone like you, that you might know that these things happened about Jesus, and that you might know that in him there is eternal life. But what we see in Psalm 119 is a man who is in covenant relationship with God. His sins are forgiven. He's not trying to earn his way to God by batting a thousand on his Bible reading. He's going to the Bible because God is merciful and loving and kind. And in that Bible, he's communing with God casting his cares upon him reading on and then praying some more just like the back of the soap bottles or the shampoo bottles says you know apply rinse and repeat that's what we just keep doing as christians we we read we pray repeat and how blessed are we what what a privilege we have to be on this side of the cross in this side of this this Bible. The man who wrote Psalm 119 didn't have the New Testament. He may not have had parts of our Old Testament if there were prophets that came after his time. If this man can, can speak wild praise about God's word, how much more us? We can say in response as we read through Psalm 119... Amen, brother, and you don't know the half of it. He didn't know about Jesus' coming like we do. He didn't have 27 books of the New Testament like we do. We can hear him praise God for his commands and think of Jesus' teaching in the gospel accounts. We can hear him talk about God's testimonies and we can think of all the things that God has done since Matthew 1. We can see what God has done in Jesus' incarnation and death and resurrection and ascension and the promises of him coming again. We could say if God's word was sweet like honey in the time of David or during Babylonian captivity, how much more now for us? Fourth, let's ask this question fourth and last. What are we to do with the Bible then? What are we to do with the Bible according to Psalm 119? Well this psalm provides a cornucopia of different ways that we're to relate to God's word. Things we're to think about God's word and things we're to do with God's Word. And no other place in the Bible shows us the example of one man's habits and attitudes with his Bible, like Psalm 119 does. So let me just list the ways without pointing them out to you, and we'll see these in more detail in weeks ahead. If we read through Psalm 119, all 176 verses looking for this, we would find things like he longs for God's word. He looks into God's word. He hides it in his heart. He studies it. He thinks of it. He meditates upon it. He learns it. He considers it. He lives it. He walks in it. He runs in it. He clings to it. He sets it before him. He fixes his eyes on it. He takes comfort in it. He's instructed by it. He wants to keep it. He promises to keep it. He resolves to keep it. He will not forget it. He remembers it. He hopes in it. He prays about it. He prays for more of it, for more clarity, for more understanding, for more obedience. He is consumed with it, he says. He's consumed by it. And he will speak of it and not be ashamed of it. He delights in it, and he loves it. What a lofty but beautiful example we have. And so every Christian here this morning should ask themselves, what have I been doing with God's word? How am I doing with God's word? How do I relate to God's word? What would describe my habits and attitudes about God's word, at least according to my actions? If those questions are painful, if those questions are convicting, maybe because there's a lack of discipline or a lack of consistency or even a lack of desire, here's what the psalmist would have you do, Christian. Three things. Number one, tell God where you are with his word. Tell him. Tell him your innermost thoughts and feelings about the Bible. Tell him he knows already. And so you can tell him because he knows already. And because he's merciful, you can tell him. You can tell him your shortcomings. You can tell him your guilty feelings. You can tell him that you struggle the last verse of Psalm 119 says this I have gone astray like sheep seek your servant this man this man with this impeccable example could say I've gone astray seek me he told God where he was And so secondly, he prayed for help, and you should too. Pray for God's help. Wherever you find yourself, however you'd grade yourself, and maybe that's not even the best way to think about any of this, but wherever you are in your use or neglect of the Bible, pray for God's help. Do you think you're less needy for God's help than the Psalm 119 man? I suspect you're more needy. I'm certain I'm more needy. I'm certain this guy loves his Bible better than I do. And if he constantly prays for God's help, how much more should I pray for his help? And then thirdly, resolve to start eating the Bible, whatever you want to call it, panting for the Bible, seeking the Bible, reading the Bible, taking in the Bible. If you're doing it, keep doing it. If you're not doing it, pick a book of the Bible and start reading through it. Go at whatever pace you want to. I'm not an angel from heaven giving you a divine message, but I think this is pretty sensible wisdom. Go at whatever pace you want to, as long as you do it prayerfully and thoughtfully and rather consistently. That's how we take in the Bible. Maybe you'd say, Ryan, I just don't read. I don't read good, you might say. Or well. You might say, I've never been a reader. I'm not a reader. You're talking today to these bookish learners who love reading, and that's just not me. I work with my hands. I didn't go to college. and that's that'd be fine. I'm sympathetic to that, to that word, to that concern, to someone like that. Because I didn't grow up reading. I, I really didn't read until about college. If I had to do a book report in school before college, I I always picked a book that also had a movie. (laughs) And I did a movie report. (laughs) I couldn't stay focused. I couldn't sit still. I don't know how anyone reads a book if you have a bike. That was my perspective when I was a kid (laughs) book or bike. I always picked bike, not book. How do you sit still if you've got a bike and curbs to jump? But sometime after the Lord saved me, I had a growing interest, not in reading more per se, but a growing interest in God. I wanted to know more, not perfectly so. I'm certainly not commending myself here. I really don't think I did much of anything to to see this through. It just happened to me. I began reading the Bible and reading books about the Bible because I wanted to know God. Reading was a means by which you get to this thing of more of God. Now I'm not saying that if you don't love the Bible that you're for sure not a Christian. Though that may be something to ask if you've never really had a love for the Bible. It's worth asking. But I think it is possible that you're a Christian and you've You're one of these who maybe has too easily let yourself off the hook of looking into the Bible much because you're not a reader. My observation over the years is that adult, literate, quote-unquote non-readers actually read what they're compelled to read, what they want to read. Some non-readers will devour owners manuals right maybe you're a non-reader and when 9-11 happened you read almost every article you could come across we read what we want to read we do and so read and if you say well I don't really have the desire I suppose I have the ability but I don't have the desire do you know how you stoke the desire for God's word It's ironic. You read God's word. You didn't want that answer, did you? You wanted me to say, here's how you swallow this pill, and you'll like God's word. And then you'll read God's word. No, you actually have to read it in order to love it. And you read and love and read and love. That's what we see here. I close with some advice from George Mueller, who was a pastor and who ran an orphanage in the 1800s. He has a lot of personal testimony about, about his walk with the Bible and prayer, and so I'm sure we'll hear from George Mueller again in upcoming weeks. But here's a few paragraphs for today. He says, "...I would give a few hints to my younger fellow believers as, the way, as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment." It is absolutely needful that we read regularly through the scriptures and not pick out here and there. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. I tell you so affectionately. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. And then my peace and joy continued more and more. I've been doing this now for 47 years. I've seen that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation. What is the food of the inner man but the word of God? And not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state, and how my inner man might be nourished. Take up and eat. Let's pray for God's help. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask for your forgiveness for our neglect and for our disinterest. We acknowledge today that a disinterest in your word in some ways is a disinterest in you. You've revealed yourself in your word. Help us to go to your word. Lord, may it be in us more and more. May it come out of us more and more. May in these upcoming weeks we learn from this psalmist well. And may we be a people of the book, a people of your word, and a church of the book. Help us for your namesake. Because you died for sins. And Lord Jesus, you're making a people who are eager to see more of you. Show us more of yourself from your word. Amen.